You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Hello, and welcome to Canada's Court, brought to you by the Criminal Lawyers Association. My name is Kyle Quinlan. I am the principal lawyer at Quinlan Law in Whitby, Ontario. I practice criminal, family, and administrative law. Today's case is Allentech Meng Lai versus Her Majesty the Queen. There is a section 486.4 publication ban involving this matter. In August 2013, Mr. Allentech Meng Lai was charged with various sexual offenses. In November 2017, Mr. Lai sought to stay his charges after alleging a breach of his Section 11b charter rights to be tried within a reasonable time. At trial, the judge found that there was a delay in the proceeding, which totaled 57 months. The judge subtracted 25 months from this total. These months were considered exceptional events because Mr. Lai re-elected. The trial judge applied the transitional exception and dismissed the Section 11b application. Mr. Lai was found guilty. Mr. Lai appealed the Section 11b ruling to the Court of Appeal for British Columbia. The majority of the Court of Appeal dismissed the appeal. The majority of the Court of Appeal found that the trial judge had erred by excluding delay caused by re-election. But the court applied the transitional case exception. In the dissent, Justice Butler found that the transitional case exception did not apply and would have allowed the appeal. Mr. Lai appealed to the Supreme Court as of right. Good morning, please be seated. In the case of Alan Tech Meng Lei against Her Majesty the Queen, for the appellant Alan Tech Meng Lei, Eric Pertsky, Michael Sopkin, for the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, Lauren A. Chu, and Leslie A. Ruzica, QC. Please note that there is a publication ban in this file pursuant to Section 486.42 of the Criminal Code. Mr. Persky. Thank you, Chief Justice. This appeal should be allowed for the reasons of Justice Butler dissenting in the court below in his finding that the trial judge erred in his transitional analysis, specifically in how he dealt with the extent of the Moran delay in this case. The Crown is incorrect in my submission on its primary submission that the unanimous Court of Appeal erred in finding that the re-election was a discrete, was not a discrete exceptional circumstance. In my submission, the re-election was not a discrete uh, exceptional circumstance. I will first address the effect of the defense re-election and how that ought to be considered under the Jordan and Moran regimes. And I will next address the errors that Justice Butler identified in the trial judge's transitional analysis and why the delay here was not in accordance with the Moran guidelines. So to my first point then on the effect of the defense re-election, in my submission, the trial judge was wrong to find that the defense re-election was an exceptional circumstance. The Court of Appeal was right to find that this, that given this was not an exceptional circumstance, the total period of delay was 43 months. 
Now, I wanted to begin on this point with the trial judge's findings as to why the defense re-election in this case was an exceptional circumstance. And that's at paragraph 190 of the trial judge's reasons, which is in the uh, uh, volume one of the appellant's record, page 50. Page 50, paragraph 190, at the bottom of that page 50, the trial judge is addressing the, the effect of the defense re-election in September 30, 2015, and he says, leaving aside illegitimate defense conduct in relation to a re-election, so it's separate and apart from defense delay, the trial judge goes on to say at the latter part of that paragraph, which is the important part in my submission, the last three lines, his finding, I, I think that a re-election that causes the loss of a scheduled trial date is a discrete exceptional circumstance that must lead to the deduction of the time between then and when the trial is rescheduled. So that is the matter of principle that the trial judge has laid down in this case. And that was the principle that he applied. That was the principle that the, the Court of Appeal said was wrong in law. The effect of a re-election in my submission cannot be an exceptional circumstance for the reasons uh, outlined by the Court of Appeal, in particular, because the effect of that re-election caused the ceiling to be increased by 12 months. The Jordan ceilings, that is 18 and 30 months, are more than up to the task of accommodating re-elections made within the statutory timelines in the code. So in this case, it was two weeks. Defense re-elected six weeks before. And so now the code provides that the re-election ought to be made as of right 60 days in advance of the appointed provincial court trial date. So it's my submission that one, Jordan ceilings are long enough to accommodate re-elections made within the statutory timelines. There is no delay because the ceiling is increased by 12 months. And of course, the ceilings, the Jordan ceilings are not aspirational targets. Most cases, as this court said, can and should be dealt with and completed within the ceilings. So ultimately, in my submission, the Court of Appeal is right in finding at uh, paragraph 103, I don't need to take the court there, but that's where Justice Wilcock for the unanimous court found that even if a re-election occurs on the latest possible time, so now two months before the appointed trial, uh, provincial court trial date, it is not an unrealistic expectation that the trial will complete within, uh, within 14 months. Mr. Mr. So, Pertsky, Mr. Pertsky, can I just ask you, you, you took us to 190. Um, I'm wondering what importance you attribute to the first sentence in paragraph 191, where the trial judge says, without challenging the general assertion that Mr. Lai was eager to get to trial, this particular strategic move was at least in the short term inconsistent with that desire. Where, where, what importance do you attribute to that comment of the judge? Well, I, in, in my submission, 
if the the trial judge was not finding he was explicit in his reason he wasn't finding defense delay so that's the first point but in real in relation to that one passage of the particular strategic move it's important to look that in the context of that comment in the context of what's at paragraph the following paragraph at paragraph 192 and the context here is that mr lies count the defense counsel at the time uh submitted to the trial judge well he was provided with a disclosure package called version 5 on September 24, six days before his re-election. The trial judge did not challenge the defense counsel's uh, position, which was a bunch of this disclosure was new. And so uh, at that point, defense says, well, that's why I re-elected, because I had been given new disclosure where now six weeks out of the trial judge, I exercised my right of re-election. And so the trial judge's comment for some sort of unexplained strategic reason, well, first, my position is one, defense counsel didn't have to explain himself. And two, the, the, the position, the, the, the reason that defense counsel gave for re-electing was reasonable in the circumstances. So he says at paragraph 192, the evidence... Well, is that, by is, Mr. Sorry, is that your view or is that the trial judge's view? The trial judge rejects that. He says that wasn't a, a valid... Uh, basis for, um, you know, sort of furthering the defense position in the trial. Well, if we look at what the trial judge says at paragraph 192, in my submission, it's not sustainable. So he says, it doesn't I'm not satisfied that the absence of re-election was compelled by the state of disclosure. In the next sentence, he says, there's an absence of contemporaneous communication suggesting that this was the situation and the, and the more logical response, if that had been a pressing problem, an application for disclosure or to adjourn the provincial court, court trial were not attempted. And so in this case, defense counsel's position was, I received this disclosure six days in advance. I made my decision to, to, to re-elect at that point when I received that. So in my submission, there wouldn't be any contemporaneous communication at that point. It was a, it was a decision made six days before the re-election. And in terms of what the trial judge has said is the more logical response, in my submission, an application for disclosure at that point when you received late disclosure is not a remedy because you already have the disclosure at that point. It's just late and new. So an application for disclosure isn't going to help you. And the application to adjourn the provincial court trial, well, in my submission, that would have been far more consequent in terms of delay because at this at this stage of the case we're already this case is already significantly long in the tooth it's a it's a significant uh, 11b problem at that point if defense counsel had applied to adjourn the trial in light of new disclosure likely would have the trial would have been adjourned and it would have been more of a uh, of a of a delay problem at that point and a potential 11b issue so in that sense in my submission not only was this a was it was it a reasonable decision? It was the one, it was the sort of least intrusive types of decisions that could be made in the circumstances. And again, this is all in the context of a, of a, of a defense counsel making full answer in defense and exercising a statutory right, which is under the code. Mr. Persky, if you go back to paragraph ninety and replace the word may, uh, replace the word must with the word may, do we still have a problem? Yes, you do, because it's not an exceptional circumstance either way. A re-election made as of right is just not an exceptional circumstance in my submission. But it's true that trial judge has done it in absolutist terms, but in my submission, the, the difficulty is, is that, as the Court of Appeal found, 
the Jordan framework is more than sufficient to accommodate re-elections. And now that sort of brings me to the, the, point, uh, the point here, which the Crown repeatedly talks about, which is this context of late re-elections. It's not late in my submission if it's made within the timeline specified in the code. Well, just and a here, moment, just a moment. Before you go on, the Crown, when he learned that that your client wanted or the defense was thinking of uh, re-electing, said, please do this quickly. Please do it quickly. We've got dates in the Supreme Court that we can, that are available. We can get this done. We don't have to. We can just switch the dates in the provincial court and get this done. Was there a reply in writing to the Crown to say, no, I'm waiting. I want to see if there's more things develop in terms of disclosure. Did there, was there any response at all to the Crown doing what it could do to move this case along in accordance with the dates that have been set in the provincial court? I don't think there, it, my, to my knowledge, there was no written reply okay, to that. Okay, so it but, doesn't, so uh, but, the defense doesn't even respond, as I understand it then, to this request until it's way too late. They've already lost the Supreme Court dates. And then it's something that happens 10 days before or whatever, all of a sudden, out of the blue, it must have been more than 10 days because the re-election occurred when? In September? September 30, 2015. Yeah, September 30. The trial was set for what? December? November. Right? Well, November? November uh, early November. Yeah. It, was, it was six weeks before the trial date. Six weeks before the trial date. Yeah. So in my submission, it, it, it doesn't, that doesn't matter because that, that was in res- the context there was uh, law, the co-accused law was contemplating a re-election. That nothing to do with, 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 with the appellant here. But more importantly, the right to re-election is not contingent on when another date would be available. So in February 2015, that's when you should have re-elected. My position is, this, these are, if, these, if there's a statutory time frame and there's a, there's a filing period, you got to do your, you can re-elect as of right within this period. That's what's determinative in this case. And in this case, even then, we're way before the statutory period. So it's not contingent on a particular moment when you can get Supreme Court trial dates at another on another. We're not looking at, at that, Mr. Time. Persky. This is an 11B situation where you're complaining that there were delays here that entitled your client to a stay. The Crown comes to him and says, if you're planning to re-elect, great, but do it quickly because we can get the dates if you're really interested in moving this thing forward, do it quickly. He doesn't hear from him until, what, you said six weeks before the trial is set. And then the excuse he gives is one that the trial judge doesn't buy. So let's keep the facts straight. Unless you're saying that that was a palpable and overriding error on the trial judge, you're reconstructing this case. Well, no, I, I am saying that it, it was an error on the part of the trial judge to, to reject that uh, to, to reject that rationale put forward by the by the by the by defense counsel at paragraph 192. That is my position. I, I say that is wrong for the reasons that he's identified, and we're well before the statutory period in this case. It, and again, the the disclosure here on the facts of this case, defense counsel says, was motivated by. The new disclosure, and it's a completely reasonable position in my in my submission to say, well, listen, I'm getting all this new disclosure. This case isn't ready to go. This case looks differently than I had than I had previously contemplated. I'm exercising my as of right 
right of re-election in this case. And so it's not contingent on a particular moment in February 2015 when, oh, there's, there's, there's a superior court tri tri trial dates available. So in my submission, uh, the ability to, to make, uh, and again, this is a statutory right, it's, a, it's an important right to make full answer in defense, the right of re-election. And in my submission, the Jordan ceilings, and in particular, the 12-month increase in the ceiling is more than sufficient to allow for re-elections made within the statutory time range. Now, keeping in mind, if you're, over the, if you're within the statutory time frame, so after 60 days, you need the consent of the prosecutor at that point to re-elect, and the Crown can reasonably say, listen, I'm not going to consent to this, or I'm going to put a condition that you waive the, the, the resulting delay. And that happens all the time. So May it is I a ask you in theory, um, it, it, in terms of the right of re-election that you're establishing, yes, the statutory right, it can um, a trial judge on, on the kind of delay motion uh, go behind the reasons for delay and do an assessment uh, to assess whether or not is it, it is attributable to defense delay? And if so, on what basis could that be attributed to the defense that's consistent with your view of a right to reelect? Now, the Court of Appeal does accept that there could be some instances where it would be defense delay. And I, I've tried to think of some of those instances, and I, I can't think. I'll give them right now. But keeping in mind, it is a statutory right. It is so fundamental. But if there is evidence suggesting that defense counsel, that as the Court of Appeal found that this was part of a lengthy pattern of delay, of illegitimate conduct, and there was evidence that defense had no intention of proceeding with those provincial court trial dates, uh, it was just they just set it up, and there was, but there's evidence to that effect. A trial judge can then make that factual determination, bearing in mind the right, the statutory right, bearing in mind what this court has said about not second guessing defense uh, decisions in terms of how to make full answer in defense, and bearing in mind all those circumstances, and factor in how much to apportion defense delay and then accordingly uh, uh, do deductions on that basis. So it is possible. And if it's part of a sustained pattern, but again, those factual findings have to be made. Those factual findings were not made by the trial judge in this case, and nor could they be. Bearing in mind that if he really wanted to get to trial quickly, your, your client is saying, bearing in mind that if he had gone for the re-election earlier, taken the Supreme Court trial dates, None of that would have changed anything in terms of the disclosure. Um, and, and so you're using something that happens months and months later to say, to give your client an out, shall we say. Had he gone along with what the Crown suggested, what's the harm at that point? If he really wants to get this case on and he wants to reelect, what's the harm? He says, oh, disclosure was a problem. You say, well, that doesn't arise until well after that. And the trial judge makes a call. It just seems to me that, you know, there was no hurry on your client's part at all to make this re-election. And it was being used in a way to hinder the process of the, the trial as opposed to get it on as quickly as you could. And I, dis I disagree. In my submission defense had a, had a right to reelect in this case 
And it was made in the context in which it was made. And he has a fundamental right to, to make his mode of election, whether it's provincial court trial. And he makes a call. The, trial, the defense counsel makes a call in accordance with the statutory timeline set out in the code. And keeping in mind that Cody says, this court in Cody has said, that defense delay, the legitimacy of defense conduct is judged in part by compliance with notice and filing requirements. And so this is not a secret. The right of re-election is not a secret. It's in the code. And the, court, the Crown has ability to do a whole bunch of things in response, in particular, uh, filing a direct indictment, which actually happened in the circumstances of this case. So in my submission there, it's wrong to speak of this being an exceptional circumstance. It's not defense delay. Now, the second point I wanted to raise is the trial judge's assessment. In this case, the, that we were actually in the pre-Jordan uh, period. This is in, the, in, a, in a Moran period. And in terms of the errors that Justice Butler identified uh, correctly in my submission was the trial judge's finding that at paragraph 232 of the trial judge's reasons that's at page 60 of the of the of the record so at the bottom of page 60 the trial judge says while the re-election, and he's dealing with his Moran analysis because it's a transitional case. While the re-election certainly had the potential of being attributed as defense delay at that time, I would think it more likely that had that more, I would think it more likely have been regarded by the parties as treated as a neutral factor in the process or as part as the inherent time requirements of the case. Regardless of its precise characterization, it would have been seen as separate from institutional delay. So what we're talking about here is the 16 months between the defense re-election in September, 23rd, uh, September 2015 to January 2017, a total period of 16 months. The trial judge says, well, that's all, that's all neutral inherent time. And Justice Butler correctly finds, well, that doesn't square with what the trial judges found at paragraph 240. So the next page over at page 62, the trial judge finds, you know, he's balancing all the factors. And now four lines up from the bottom of that paragraph, he said, the case proceeded, it, it proceeded with reasonable efficiency despite the prevailing amount of institutional delay in each court and the defense decision to reelect. So it, amount of institutional delay in each court. So there he's talking about his Moran analysis and the pre-Jordan period, institutional delay in both courts. And so as Justice Butler found, well, he found at the previous paragraph 232 that it's all neutral and inherent time, all that 16 months, yet at the same time, giving due deference to his finding a fact that there, was uh, that there was institutional delay doesn't square with his finding to write the whole period off as neutral time. Clearly, some of that time had to be institutional delay. And Justice Butler uh, correctly held that that in the circumstance of this case on a conservative estimate would be eight to 10 months. And so using then the Moran standards, uh, and applying them to the circumstances of this case as Justice Butler does, he arrives at, well, we're at really at a period of eight, eight to 10 months into institutional delay. And so that sort of feeds into my, my sort of final uh, part of my submission in terms of the other errors the trial judge committed in this case. And that is, so if we have eight to 10 months of institutional delay, the trial judge 
found four to five months of crown delay at the outset of the case. And he further found an 11 months of institutional delay in the second period of the case, resulting in Justice Butler correctly held um, 23 to 26 months of delay in this case. So in terms of the trial judge's underlying fa factual findings, which Justice Butler gave deference, is only the legal conclusion he disagreed with was at paragraph 227 of his reasons. So that's at, at page 59 of his reasons, 59 of the record, paragraph 224, 227 rather. He finds this is not to excuse in any way the completely unsatisfactory pace at which Crown Disclosure proceeded. And then further at paragraph paragraph 228 on the next page, the last sentence, he says perhaps four or five months of the 10 months of the total pretrial arraignment period would have expected to attribute to the Crown for this reason. So finding a fact, he attributes four to five months uh, of delay due to a completely unsatisfactory disclosure process. And we couple that with his finding at paragraph 231 as institutional, uh, uh, institutional delay. So that's pa uh, paragraph 231 at page 60. As institutional delay, 11 months of the first offered trial date when added to the excessive intake period. So we're at we're at a significant period of time now. We're at 15 to 16 months. And the tr what Justice Butler takes issue with is um, his, his finding from that, that clearly created a situation in which the case would have already been seen by the parties under the Moran guidelines to be at risk of a Section 11B problem of, at the, in the near future. As Justice Butler correctly found, that's an understatement. We're only in provincial court at this point. The Moran guideline is 8 to 10, and it's uh, an extra four, uh, six to eight, so at 14 to 16 months, we're well above the Moran, gu the gu the Moran guideline for provincial court, and we're, we're, we're on the upper end of the superior court guideline at that point. So in my submission, Justice Butler correctly gave deference to those underlying findings. It was only the legal conclusion that he drew at paragraph 232. Sorry. Sorry, that's a par uh, sorry, at paragraph 240 at page 62. The last sentence of paragraph 240, page 62. The last sentence being, I think the parties were quite unlikely to have contemplated the possibility of a section 11B application being made in relation to it during the significant pre-Jordan period that it encompassed. So that's the legal conclusion, unlikely to have contemplated the possibility. As Justice Butler found, we're way over the Moran guidelines. And of course, that's not the end of the analysis. Of course, the extent of the Moran delay is relevant. And my submission is a significant weighing factor in the exercise. So if we're well over the Moran guidelines in this case, we're, all, we're, we're significantly on our way to a stay, but that's not it. The trial judge found actual prejudice Justice Butler gone further and said he should have found inferred prejudice, but even finding some degree of, uh, of actual prejudice. And that also says nothing about the trial judge's further error in finding at page, at paragraph 239, 
That's above the 240 where he reads his, his legal conclusions. And this is in terms of the seriousness of the offense. He says, while stays of proceedings for delaying sexual assault cases of this notable degree of serious were not unknown under Morin, I think the parties would have reasonably expected them to be fairly a, a, be a, rarely, a rare occurrence, unlikely to arise in the absence of really appalling delay, a, a really appalling delay period, or some combination of significant crown negligence or blatant disregard for the usual urgency that attached to serious prosecutions. In my submission, that is just plain wrong. That this court and other courts of appeal have found that it is not uh, sexual assaults uh, cases um, are justified where the circumstances warranted, weighing the circumstances and the seriousness of the offense. That's what Justice Butler did in this case correctly, I say. What courts have done in finding in staying sexual assault cases for less delay in this case, and in my submission, that's a further error which justified. Justice Butler in conducting a fresh analysis of this case and finding that the delay could not be justified under the under the previous regime and keeping in mind that this ultimately as a transitional case, it wouldn't be regarded by the it would it was significantly offside of Moran and we're talking about 43 months of delay in this case so in my submission, uh, the appeal should be allowed for the reasons given by Justice Butler. Thank you very much for their questions those are my submissions. Thank you. Lauren Chu. Chief Justice, Justices, the appellant argues that his trial took too long to complete and that the lower courts erred in dismissing his delay application in the context of his choice to delay commencement of his trial by over 14 months by re-electing from provincial court to Supreme Court. And the explanation that he gave for the late timing of his re-election, given it occurred 15 months after his original trial dates were scheduled, was rejected by the trial judge. In light of the 12-month increase to the Jordan ceiling for two-stage proceedings, the BC Court of Appeal concluded that the trial judge erred in deducting 12 months of the delay occasioned by the appellant's untimely re-election because the Jordan framework can, quote, accommodate, unquote, late re-elections. For the same reason, the appellant suggests that his late re-election did not actually cause any delay to, the, to his proceeding. With respect, the appellant's position and the Court of Appeals analysis on this issue represent a fundamental misapprehension of this court's purpose in creating the presumptive ceilings, and in fact, does the very opposite of what this court intended by treating the ceilings as aspirational targets and rewarding complacency rather than encouraging proactivity. At paragraph 139 of Jordan, this court observed that all courts, including this one, must be mindful of the impact of their decisions on the conduct of trials, and for this reason, the respondent urges the court not only to uphold the majority's dismissal of the appellant's appeal, but to clarify the application of the Jordan framework to inefficient, unexplained, untimely delay-causing defense re-elections. I'm going to begin by addressing well, haven't, the haven't, concept. Haven't we, already, haven't we already done that effectively in Cody, when we say the decision to take a step as well as the manner in which it's conducted may attract scrutiny, is that insufficient? I believe that uh, the, in my submission, the 
notwithstanding this court's comments that legitimacy has a specific meaning within the Jordan framework, the lower courts, in particular courts in BC, have struggled with applying this to the Jordan, this aspect of the Jordan framework, in particular with using the term illegitimate when considering defense re-elections as a right. And so for this reason, the respondent has referred to the appellant's re-election as untimely. The respondent also observes that um, perhaps the analysis applied when the court considers delay caused by defense unavailability, when the court and Crown are ready to proceed but the defense is not, may be helpful in assessing delay caused by defense re-elections. For example, if the accused retains new counsel shortly before trial and the new counsel is not available on the current scheduled trial dates, it's clear that the ensuing delay for the trial until it's rescheduled would be attributable to the accused, and it's not necessary to make a corresponding finding that the retention of new counsel was illegitimate to make that deduction. And so perhaps, alternatively, this is a similar situation where the Crown and court are ready to proceed, but the defense is not. The respondent also wishes to address the, the notion of timeliness in the context of a defense re-election as of right. The appellant takes issue with this characterization that his re-election was untimely. Given it occurred, it was exercised as of right more than 14 days, as was then required before the first scheduled day of his provincial court trial. Now, timeliness in this context is relative to the Jordan principles, namely the duty on all litigants to be proactive in moving cases forward and to eliminate eliminate inefficient delay-causing practices. Furthermore, what is at issue here is the timeliness of the appellant's conduct in the context of his proceeding. Six weeks of court time were tied up for the 15 months that elapsed between, elapsed between the arraignment and his re-election, and the appellant was completely silent in response to the Crown's proactive advice in February of 2015 that the same trial dates could be secured in Supreme Court if a re-election was made soon. He inexplicably waited for eight more months before exercising his right to re-elect. And then his counsel wasn't available for the first trial dates offered by the court in September of 2016, and the trial couldn't be scheduled until January of 2017, four months later. Um, further to paragraph 32 of Cody, the appellant's compliance with the criminal code notice requirements is just one of many factors that may be considered in scrutinizing the manner in which defense action is conducted for the purpose of ascertaining defense delay. And lastly, the untimeliness of the appellant's re-election flows from the absence of an explanation for that late timing. In some circumstances, a re-election made even four days before a scheduled trial might be reasonable, as occurred, for example, in Godin, as a result of a late Crown disclosure. The analysis of what is or is not timely in the context of the Jordan framework is highly contextual and may look different from case to case, depending on all the circumstances. It seems to me, uh, just like your opinion on this, that the defense is, is using that part of Jordan that it likes and ignoring the parts of Jordan that say, for example, that both sides must be very proactive, trying to move the thing along, raising concerns at the first available opportunity, etc., etc. And it seems to me that if, in fact, <clears throat> the, the re-election itself, which is obviously provided for by the code and is, would normally be perfectly proper, is effectively used to delay the trial, and not just delay it, 
but delay it for over a year uh, because, you know, once you miss that Supreme Court date, they offer you an earlier date, council wasn't ready, so you end up going into September, I think, of, or sometime in 17. I'm not sure exactly when. I think it was March 17, was it? B- before you Gen- get... Sorry, go ahead. January 2017. December 2017. So we, we lose a year, and as you say, the courts are tied up during this period of time. The time in the, in the provincial court was tied up unnecessarily. I mean, how does this kind of comport with those aspects of Jordan that say uh, that the defense seemed to be ignoring, i.e., you've got to move things along? And the defense in this case said, well, we had an excuse for not doing it. But the excuse isn't accepted by the judge. So if you don't get, if you don't get up to the 30-month ceiling at all in Jordan, if you're under it, you don't even get into a transitional exercise. But the defense takes the position, you know, that we, the, it went way over Jordan, the delay here. They want the best of Jordan. They don't want, the, they don't want to comply with what Jordan says they're supposed to do. You see what I'm saying? I mean, they want to take the benefits without the other aspects of Jordan that says everybody's got to be proactive. Yes, Justice Moldaver. In the respondent's submission, the late re-election reflects complacent behavior. Um, so not just the absence of, of proactive conduct, but actually complacent conduct, which was, of course, the exact issue that Jordan sought to redress. And in my submission in Cody, in setting out that it's not just the fact of the procedural step, but the manner in which it is exercised um, that bears scrutiny. And that's something that uh, the appellant does not address. And in my submission, neither did the trial judge nor the court of appeal. Um, And in particular, where the conduct exhibits market inefficiency or market indifference to delay, then in those circumstances, it is properly characterized as defense conduct or defense delay. Now, in the respondent's submission, the court of appeal erred by concluding that the trial judge expressly found the appellant's untimely re-election was not defense delay. The respondent says there was no such finding by the trial judge, nor is there any analysis or reasons for this court to pay deference to. In particular, there's no application, as I've said, of this court's comments at paragraphs 32 to 34 of Cody, where it clarified that defense delay under the Jordan framework includes inaction that causes delay and conduct that exhibits market inefficiency or market indifference to delay. Now, the trial judge's references to defense delay in the analysis section of his reasons are limited to noting at paragraph 188 that the fact of the re-election in itself is a, is a legitimate procedural step available to an accused. And then at paragraph 190, in the context of setting out his finding that the re-election constituted an exceptional circumstance, he says only leaving aside illegitimate defense conduct in relation to a re-election. Now, there are two possibilities here. Either those very brief and indirect references to defense delay constitute the trial judge's entire analysis and conclusion on this critical issue, or the respondent says the trial judge bypassed consideration of defense delay and proceeded straight to consideration of exceptional circumstances. 
particularly so given the trial judge expressly rejected the defense explanation for the late timing of the defense re-election, which went to the heart of the issue in this case, was that delay solely and directly caused by the defense? And did the manner in which the appellant exercises right to re-elect exhibit marked indifference to delay or marked inefficiency? Now, the respondent says in this case, the defense re-election exhibited both. It was markedly inefficient because he did not re-elect until 15 months after his initial trial dates were set, less than six weeks, 40 days before his six-week trial was scheduled to begin. This is precisely the kind of situation that the court in Jordan envisioned at paragraph 43 when it observed that criminal proceedings do not occur in a vacuum and to paraphrase that each procedural step um, that is improperly taken or takes longer than it should deprives other worthy litigants of timely access to the courts. Ms. Chu, what do you say about the finding in paragraph 214 then, where it's summarizing defense delay, none? It's not an agnosticism about defense delay, as you've suggested. It's actually, it seems to me to be perhaps read as a finding rather than an agnosticism. Well, in my submission, it's equally consistent with the respondent's position that he, the trial judge considered it first as an exceptional circumstance, as necessarily it was one or the other in this case. It wouldn't be both. So after he concluded that it was except, um, an exceptional circumstance, then of course the necessary, that necessarily meant that there wasn't a finding of defense delay. So when um, he but that said, doesn't mean that he, he said, first found um, it's different, I say, than first finding that it in fact was not legally defense delay. Would this, would this explain when the, the trial judge said at 190, your colleague raised this in support of his position, leaving aside illegitimate defense conduct in relation to an, a re-election? Your sense is that's the trial judge signaling that he's bypassing that, going to exceptional circumstance, and thus obviating the need to to explore defense delay? Is that, that's, is that what I understand you to mean by bypass? Uh, yes, that's, that's correct. So in the respondent's submission, the, respondent, the appellant's untimely re-election also exhibited marked indifference to delay. We know that had he re-elected in, re-elected in February instead of September, there would have been no delay to his trial, and he could have secured this, the provincial court trial dates, the same dates, in Supreme Court. Instead, he waited, and he voluntarily chose to forgo imminent trial dates in favor of proceeding in court 14, Supreme Court 14 months later. Now, alternatively, the untimely re-election could also be characterized as inaction that amounted to defense delay as set out at paragraph 33 of Cody. This is analogous to Dixon, where the court's, the accused lack of diligence in pursuing disclosure was cited by this court as an example of an omission that may amount to defense delay. The accused's failure to provide an explanation for this significant period of inaction before he re-elected and caused significant delay to his trial amounts to inaction giving rise to defense delay under the Jordan framework. Alternatively, the respondent, if it's not defense delay, the respondent submits that the trial judge's conclusion that the appellant's re-election was a discrete event giving rise to an exceptional circumstance was correct. At paragraphs 189 to 191 of his reasons, the trial judge found that the two prerequisites to establishing exceptional circumstances had been established by the Crown in this case. One, 
the re-election was outside of the Crown's control, and two, the Crown did everything possible to mitigate the delay as soon as it had notice of Defence Council's intention to re-elect by seeking to replace the lost trial dates with the same dates in Supreme Court and preferring the direct indictment. It seems to me when we put our head on yesterday's shoulders and when we realize that what happened here was that there's delay in making the re-election at a time when the defense and everybody knows, you know, um, that the courts are jammed. They are, their delay is just kind of, it's a, it's a disease within the criminal justice system uh, across the country. And I don't believe that Alberta would have been a different, or sorry, BC is this, I don't know what it is, BC I guess, but there's no reason to think that they wouldn't have realized that by not taking the date that was offered to them in the Supreme Court when it was offered to replace the provincial court, but delaying seven months before they make the call then saying we're going to the Supreme Court, they know they're going to be in huge trouble in the Supreme Court trying to get a 10-day trial scheduled back in those days. I mean, it looks to me like a very strategic move on the part of the defense. When we put to, when you look back at what was going on at that time, and then it, in fact, a move designed to further delay Yes, Justice Moldaver, and in fact, this was a was a seven week trial, and so it just goes to show the um, that the appellant would have been well aware that the delay in reelecting would cause significant delay in terms of his ability to secure new trial dates in the Supreme Court. Now. And with respect to the BC Court of Appeals analysis on the exceptional circumstances framework, um, I note that at the outset of the appellant's re, um, at the outset of the trial judge's treatment of the appellant's re-election under the Jordan framework, the trial judge concluded at paragraph 189 that it would be inconsistent with the values expressed in Jordan to attribute to the ceiling the effects of an accused decision not to take advantage of an imminent scheduled trial in the court in which he is elected to be tried, as that would place the crown in a situation in which it becomes responsible for delay in which it cannot prevent. The Court of Appeal, however, unanimously came to the opposite conclusion, finding that this delay was not attributable to the appellant and that it counted towards the presumptive ceiling. Although the Court of Appeal majority ultimately came to the correct conclusion in dismissing the appeal, the court's analysis on the attribution of delay by, caused by the appellant's re-election is inconsistent with the objectives and values set out in Jordan. First, the Court of Appeal reasoned at paragraph 103 of its reasons of its decision that the system can, quote, accommodate, unquote, late re-elections, observing that generally cases will still finish under the presumptive ceiling, even in the case of a last-minute re-election, due to the 12-month increase to the Jordan ceiling. And as I've already stated, that reasoning is antithetical to the very issue, complacency that Jordan sought to redress. As the majority observed at paragraph 56 of Jordan, the presumptive ceilings are non-aspirational targets. Those additional 12 months are not a benefit to the Crown, the justice system, or the victims. 
Those 12 months are not time that either party, due to inefficiency or complacency, is entitled to take up. Second, the Court of Appeals analysis does not have sufficient regard for this court's observation at paragraph 43 of Jordan that criminal proceedings do not occur in a vacuum. Again, the appellant tied up six weeks of court time in provincial court for 15 months, depriving other litigants of timelier access to the courts. Now, in this case, the Crown proceeded um, to prefer a direct indictment to mitigate the delay, but that does not change the fact that each month the appellant waited to reelect meant further delay before the trial would commence. And of course, paragraphs 19 to 28 of Jordan reiterate that the interest protected by Section 11B include the interest of vic- the victim, society at large, and that timely trials are important to maintaining public confidence in the justice system. Lastly, the Court of Appeals analysis is also problematic in that it suggests that paragraphs 104 and 105 that to be deducted as a discrete event, the defense conduct must be illegitimate. In other words, it imports components of the defense delay framework into the exceptional circumstances test. Now, the appellant in his reply suggests that reply factum suggested that these comments were in reference to defense delay, but his position is diff- difficult to reconcile with the court's explicit reference twice to the application of the exceptional circumstances test in those paragraphs. Now, with respect to the length of the deduction and the application of KGK, the trial judge's clear intention was to deduct the the period between the anticipated ending of the appellant's provincial court trial and the scheduled beginning of his Supreme Court trial. The trial judge delivered his Section 11B ruling prior to this court's decision in KGK, Accordingly, he erroneously calculated the anticipated ending of the appellant's provincial court trial based on the anticipated verdict rather than the end of evidence in closing submissions, which led him to attribute an extra month to the ceiling that based on his intentions ought to have been deducted. And so properly calculated to accord with KGK, the delay in this case caused by the appellant's untimely Untimely re-election is 13 months rather than 12 months, and the delay accordingly does not exceed the 30-month presumptive ceiling. Now, with respect to the length of the deduction itself, um, the 12 months that the trial judge found cause um, attributed to the, or the 13 months um, properly calculated that the trial judge attributed to the appellant, the trial judge did not commit any error in his calculation of the delay, and second, his assessment of the extent to which it was the appellant's delay in re-electing and causing the scheduling delay for a Supreme Court trial, his assessment was reasonable and it's entitled to deference on appeal. Furthermore, the trial judge's assessment of delay of the delay was consistent with the message from this court that all justice system participants have a duty to be proactive in bringing accused persons to trial and Gordon's goal of ensuring, Jordan's goal of ensuring, discouraging complacency by deducting inefficient delay causing defense conduct. Lastly, the trial judge's approach to calculating delay also promotes the goal of providing clarity to the 11B framework. An accused who makes an unexplained late re-election will do so with full knowledge that the entire period between the original trial dates and the new trial dates may count as defense delay. Just returning to um, your point, Justice Moldaver, about Um, whether this was a strategic move by the appellant um, 
were directly aimed at causing delay. That's the very issue with the notion of a defense reelection as of right. The accused or the appellant does not need to provide any explanation for his or her conduct. And the reasoning behind and the timing behind uh, a defense reelection is exclusively within the knowledge and control of the accused. Um, in this case, it was somewhat fortuitous that the Crown had learned um, through the appellant's co-accused counsel that of the possibility of re-election. But, um, and I note that the, the Court of Appeal was noted in its reasons with apparent criticism that there wasn't any evidence of what um, trial dates were available in the intervening time between February and September, and that the trial judge didn't make any specific finding that the appellant had to re-elect in February. But again, how could the, the Crown ever produce that evidence? Um, you know, it's, it's going to be rare that the uh, Crown would have such evidence that the re-election was specifically designed to delay. And so in the absence of reasoning um, for, uh, in particular, a late timing, uh, the late timing of a re-election, in those circumstances, it, it, is, it is open to the court to infer that uh, there, there isn't um, a response in terms of the Jordan framework um, that there isn't um, a reason that that justifies that delay. May I ask you, uh, in terms of um, arguing that it's um, sort of an exceptional circumstance or discrete event, how can we say that the right to elect contained in the statute could ever qualify as something unforeseen by the Crown? Well, the Justice Fraser, the the Justice Martin, sorry, the um, exceptional circumstances only requires that it's either reasonably foreseen or reasonably unavoidable from the Crown's perspective. So, well, perhaps it doesn't meet the, the test in terms of being reasonably unforeseen. Um, it, it does um, often, and in this case, does meet the, the other alternative aspect in terms of it being where, reasonably unavoidable. Where does it say from the Crown's perspective? The second branch certainly deals with whether the Crown could take steps to deal with it. But the examples in Jordan are illness, recanting witnesses. They're things that are unforeseeable. Well, in the, in the context of uh, the timing of the, the re-election in particular, and it, it's, it's not that the re-election itself is is necessarily unforeseen or unavoidable, but to the it's the timing that the crown has no control over. I, I think you can't conflate the two aspects to dis, to the discrete exceptional event. The first prong talks about unforeseen or unavoidable. It doesn't say only from the crown's perspective, and that's what I'm asking you. How can it be? Unforese uh, uh, unforeseen when the right is exercised within the statutory timeline. Well, and of course, the the respondent's primary position is that ordinarily, um, the defense uh, uh, the defense exercise of a re-election as of right, an untimely exercise of that right, 
ought to be addressed under the defense delay framework. And so, I think that's probably true, but just it seems to me the only way it's reasonably avoidable or unavoidable to for the Crown to deal with a re-election is to directly indict everybody. I don't think the defense bar would like that very much. But, I mean, if they want to avoid this thing, they just directly indict everybody. And we'd hear screaming and moaning and groaning from high quarters. Yes, that's, that's true, Justice Moldaver. And, and in my submission, Justice Karakistanis, well, it doesn't specifically express in the first prong of the exceptional circumstances framework that it must be from the Crown's perspective. It's, it's from the context of the proceeding as a whole. So from the perspective of, obviously, the it wouldn't be from the perspective of the accused, as the the timing and reasoning behind the re-election is, of course, within uh, the accused knowledge and control. But um, alternatively, it, it must be from the perspective of the justice system and the Crown um, would be the the only reasonable alternative um, explanation in my submission. Turning to the application of the transitional exceptional circumstance, the respondent relies on the majority's decision upholding the trial judge's application of the transitional exception with one caveat that the majority as well as the dissenting justice overlooked six months of delay that should have been deducted including four months of the delay caused by defense counsel's unavailability for trial until January of 2017, following the appellant's re-election. On that basis, the net delay was 37 rather than 43 months, and the Court of Appeal majority was otherwise correct in concluding that the transitional exceptional circumstance applied. As the majority observed, the trial judge was intimately familiar with the delay in this case, He considered the relevant factors, and his findings are entitled to deference. Relying on the dissent, the appellant says, the trial judge erred in his transitional exceptional circumstance in three respects. With respect to the first issue, the respondent says the trial judge did not err in applying the Moran framework, nor did he under-attribute the amount of institutional delay properly calculated in accordance with the jurisprudence dealing with uh, co-accused delay as neutral, um, in pre-Jordan jurisprudence and the late defense re-elections as defense delay, the total institutional delay was 15, 16 months, well within the Moran guidelines for two-stage proceedings. Furthermore, the trial judge did not overlook inferred prejudice. He expressly noted that the delay, the prejudice experienced by the appellant would have accumulated as the case grew older. And finally, the trial judge did not err with respect to his characterization or application of the seriousness of the offense. The offenses were unquestionably serious. The appellant drugged and effectively helped himself to the victim's body while she lay there helpless and unconscious. And his offenses were planned and premeditated. There's no question that the trial judge understood the issue before him. What would the parties have reasonably expected in light of the seriousness and the circumstances of this case? This case is far removed from what this court envisioned at paragraph 98 of Jordan when it spoke of the kind of transitional case that would warrant a stay of proceedings for unreasonable delay, namely a simple case that vastly exceeds the ceiling because of repeated mistakes or missteps by the Crown. 
The interests protected by Section 11B, the right to timely justice, belong not only to the accused but to society, and in particular to the victims, their families, the witnesses, and the police investigators involved in the case. Thank, thank you, Ms. Chu. Thank you very much. Um, any reply, Mr. Persky? No reply, thank you. Thank you very much. So I would ask the attorneys to remain at our disposal. Once again, I'd like to thank counsel for their submissions. The court is ready to release its decision. And I will ask Justice Moldaver to read the reasons. <coughs> Cody at paragraph 32 states as follows, quotes, defense conduct encompasses both substance and procedure, the decision to take a step as well as the manner in which it is conducted may attract scrutiny to determine whether defense action is legitimately taken to respond to the charges the circumstances surrounding the action or conduct may therefore be considered, end of quote. In this case, the appellant, Mr. Lai, had the statutory right to re-elect when he did, but he waited 15 months to re-elect after his trial dates were set in provincial court. This was despite being informed by Crown Counsel that he could preserve his trial dates by re-electing earlier. Nonetheless, he waited seven months after that warning to exercise his right to re-elect. This conduct had the direct result of losing the trial date that was set in provincial court and causing an additional delay of 13 months. The trial judge rejected Mr. Lay's explanation regarding the re-election. Based on the trial judge's own findings and conclusions, the re-election was not done legitimately to respond to the charges. To that extent, the trial judge erred in not characterizing the delay as defense delay and deducting it as such. For these reasons, a majority of the court would dismiss the appeal. Justice Cote dissenting, is dissenting. She would have allowed the appeal substantially for the reasons of Butler J.A. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.